Just south of Buckeye and north of the Gila River is a dirt road, dried brush, and seemingly nothing. But that dirt road used to be the main street through a once vibrant and active community, an all-black community called Allenville. But in 1978, floods forced residents to evacuate, this time for good. Besides the absence of good water and sanitation, the 400 people of Allenville have no stores, no mail delivery, no streetlights, no stop signs. That was the voice of Charlton Heston. He narrated a video called While I Run This Race, which was released in 1967. The Office of Economic Opportunity, in association with AmeriCorps VISTA, produced this short documentary film about poverty in the United States, which included Allenville. During this time, AmeriCorps VISTA, which is an anti-poverty program, was stationed in the community to help with education and job training programs. But with the lack of, well, everything, you may be wondering why anybody would want to live in such a place. But back in the 1940s, when part of the town was first sold for just $1 from Lee Norton to the town's namesake, John Allen, it was the only area of town where Black people could own land. A Valley 101 listener named Kevin asked us to investigate this dusty town he remembers from his childhood. He told our producer, Amanda Luberto, how he would take trips with his grandparents on the back roads of Buckeye, and that one day they took a different route and stumbled upon what looked like an old town or community. He said that he didn't know the name of it back then, but it stuck with him. He did some searching and discovered it was Allenville. But when Kevin, or even producer Amanda, first did some research, there wasn't much to find. In this episode of Valley 101, Amanda teamed up with Taylor Seeley, the Arizona Republic's Southwest reporter, to uncover the hidden past of this all-Black community on the west side of Phoenix. You probably remember Taylor from past episodes of Valley 101, considering she used to be on the podcast team. So, ladies, what did you find? We wanted to start at the beginning and figure out how the West Valley became home to this all-Black community. Historically, Black people have been redlined, and housing discriminations have cast them into segregated neighborhoods, even well after laws were passed to end that. Redlining was a systemic discriminatory practice that makes resources unobtainable for residents based on their race. It was a term coined by sociologist John McKnight in the 1960s, and comes from how the federal government would literally draw a red line on a map to indicate the neighborhoods that they would not invest in based on demographics. These neighborhoods included flood zones and areas without clean water. The land Allenville sits on is in a flood zone, and they did not have clean water. But the Fair Housing Act, which prohibited racial discrimination in housing, didn't come into effect until nearly 25 years after Allenville was settled. Lee Norton's divorce left him in a financial bind, forcing him to sell the land. But because this land was in poor condition, he sold some pieces of Allenville for just $1, as Kayla said earlier. He sold it to John Allen, who became the first of many homeowners in Allenville. People were moving to Arizona from the South with the hope of new opportunities. One of those families was Rachel Wilburn Lees. My grandfather moved out from Louisiana Arkansas and brought my dad when he was five. So I'm the third generation uh, that lived in Allenville. Rachel's grandfather was one of many people who moved to Arizona looking for work. 
mostly farm work. They were coming this way because work was was dry. They had no work there. And so the men would come out, find this work, and then go back and move their families out. Their families and or let the neighbors know, say, hey, there's work out in Arizona, and they would load up their families, and, and eventually that's where people started settling down there. Settling down in Allenville was a really big deal. There weren't many places they could live, let alone own land and a home. To build a life in Allenville was really appealing. Although the population of Allenville is unclear, during the 1960s, some newspaper accounts put the population between 400 and 500 residents. While it's easy to dwell on the tragic ending the town had and focus on the racial discrimination set up by redlining districts, Rachel remembers having a really nice childhood. We'd play softball. We'd, we'd have teams. Our base may be a paper plate or cardboard box, but we'd make our bases and we'd play baseball and divide up in teams and just, we had a good time. Allenville was where I grew up, where my friends and cousins and family, we all hung out and, uh, and just lived life. All the kids played together, the families kind of hung out together picnic together, you know, shared, helped each other in whatever way possible. It was a very rural. Uh, we had a one mile paved two lane roadway, uh, the stretch of Allenville, I would say about one mile, right? There were, the majority of the houses were either built there, uh, or moved down there. Um, there were a couple that were FHA homes that were built, uh, but that was in the latter part. Uh, I can't remember if there were trailers, but they were mo mostly some even little shanty type houses, but they were built uh, by the community men. They would get together and, and with gathering either scrap lumber or donated lumber and they would build. And, uh, but there were, I think overall, some 50 to 60 families that were down there. There was two main churches, one about midway, uh, the one mile stretch, and the other one uh, at the end of that mile stretch. Uh, and we used to refer to it as, up. we lived, Joanne and I lived down the hill and there was up the hill sort of a slant, and the other church was up the hill. Joanne Shoemaker grew up in Allenville, too, and is Rachel's childhood friend. She joined us for the interview as well, but experienced a stroke a few years back, so Rachel primarily retold their stories. In a town like this, it was easy for all the kids to become friends. Everybody knew everybody. I mean, we literally could step out in our yard and, and yell and wave and say hi. So we grew up close. Matter of fact, the area in between our two houses was kind of our playground. We played <laughs> kickball and sand volleyball and, and softball and bonfires. That's kind of where the kids kind of met and hung out. And I, I say kids, but adults too. And like every kid that grew up in Arizona, 
rainy days were the most cherished. I mean, it wasn't grassy. It was dusty, you know, sand, but that's where we, that's where we kind of hung out. No pavement other than that one mile strip. So needless to say, rainy days were fun. Well, (laughs) depending on how old you were, it was fun. It was a lot of mud. (laughs) A lot of mud. Some people getting stuck and having to have help get unstuck, but but it was fun. If you were a kid, it was fun. The dusty sand that made up the streets of Allenville that Rachel described was more than just dust. It had a powdery, salty coarseness that she said looked like snow if you didn't know better. This was related to the undrinkable water supply in the town. The water in Allenville was full of salt and high in alkali, which is really rough on the body. Reporting on the town in the Arizona Republic from 1969 features stories about children getting ringworm or impetigo sores as a result from drinking or bathing in the unsuitable water from the town's well. Children told the reporter back then things like, drink that water and your stomach will boil. Because of this, the residents would have to haul their clean water in from surrounding towns. Michael Sullivan was the curator at the Buckeye Valley Museum until 2007, and he told us... They developed relationships with folks in um, Buckeye, they could fill up like, gas stations, fill up five-gallon containers and stuff like that. But that always depended on the whim of the property owner. They had too little water or too much water. It was a real problem. Either the wells aren't going or the flood's happening. And that's when in the... Um, 60s, 70s, I can't remember exactly when the, your paper, the Republic, started a campaign about getting water to Allenville and really brought it to the public's attention. To help the town build wells, the Arizona Republic and the Maricopa Association of Governments publicly raised more than $26,000, overreaching their goal of $24,000. That money was matched by the Farmers Home Administration. But even though the wells were successful... All it brought up was contaminated water, undrinkable with the amount of salt it contained. I, mean, I really don't know how they did it. I mean, living down there all the, through the summers without any good water and having to haul it all the time, that's got to be rough every day. And as Michael said, they either had too little or too much water. The town suffered three major floods in its few years because it was nestled in a flood zone of three main rivers, the Gila, Salt, and Agua Fria. There were small floods every so many years, too. These were considered okay, not too much damage, and easier to come back from. But two floods bookending 1978 were a different story. The first one happened in March, after Arizona had experienced above-average rainfall earlier that year and needed to release reservoirs all over the state. While Allenville had some of the worst damage The flood affected 13 counties and resulted in three deaths. It cost the state nearly $67 million. The town's residents had just enough time to evacuate, but personal effects were lost, and together they had to rebuild. The second flood that year in December was the end of Allenville.
Again, due to more rain than anticipated, the whole valley experienced mass floodings. Water was released from multiple dams around the greater Phoenix area. But having just rebuilt their town, Allenville got hit the hardest. But the last flood, I was actually at 17. I was a senior in high school. And so I remember that. And I remember when the water receded going into our home, seeing a waist-high water line and an ankle-high mud, uh, you know, and the, just the stench of wet, um, you know, water that has gone through every area of your home. So that's what I remember. Um, I think we grabbed as much as we could when the warning came to evacuate. Uh, but as far as any furnishings and that sort of thing, that was that was just gone with the flood or destroyed with the flood. My personal thoughts is they had to release that water from somewhere because it was it was going to burst out of its dams or whatever was holding it. And so us being in that floodplain, we took the brunt of that. Rachel says she remembers being given just enough time to evacuate with a few irreplaceable items. I just remember we had a, my dad had a pickup with a camper on it, and I remember him uh, loading us up in that with clothing and, you know, pictures and things that we could salvage and getting in that camper and going into Buckeye to find refuge somewhere. I had a cousin that actually lived in Buckeye at that time. We ended up going to their house, but many went to the schools. Rachel says she doesn't remember a lot about how people felt in the moment about the flood and the end of her hometown. At that time, kids didn't sit around and listen to grown folks' conversation, as oh, they said. No. <laughs> so that wasn't something we were privy to watch. <laughs> but but I can tell you, um, when we did hear, there definitely was some disgruntledness and frustration that this kept happening to us. And not only that, people had been there, had homes, and, you know, um, everything they own is there. It's important to note that this didn't just happen to Allenville. Many parts of the valley were affected by the floods in 1978. But this community was only given the opportunity to purchase land in a flood zone downstream from a dam, a dam that needed to be released multiple times. Eventually, FEMA and the Red Cross did come in to help with natural disasters that this town faced. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development provided temporary housing. They put two rows of single-wide uh, manufactured homes or trailers that stretch for a uh, mile or a half mile, mile, three quarters of a mile, where they relocated all the residents. So everybody that had a home uh, that did not uh, have a place to go were given a trailer by uh, FEMA and moved their families in. Most families could fit in one. I think there were a few families that had to have two uh, because of the size of family, but that's where they temporarily relocated those families. It took a couple of years for families to relocate. Some, like Rachel's family, moved to what is now Old Town Buckeye. Others moved to an area off of Interstate 10 and Palo Verde Road that was dedicated to Allenville survivors in 1981. This town is now called Hopeville. And those homes were built out there were homes that were built for people that had homes in Allenville. 
they did take the the trailers, the manufactured homes, and those people, because there were some uh, youngsters, single people that really didn't have any property per se, that they offered those trailers to for a small price. They could purchase that trailer. And so there's three, probably three cul-de-sacs of trailers that were put out there. And so some of those individuals uh, owned a trailer and a spot out in Hopeville. So on one side of the community is houses. On the other side were the trailers. While a lot was lost and Allenville now had no residents, Joanne wanted to make sure that there was still some record. She said every so often people from her childhood would get together at funerals and comment how they should have a reunion over happier circumstances. Joanne started interviewing people from Allenville and collecting their stories of living there. Eventually, she went to the Buckeye Valley Museum, where she met Michael from before. One day, Joanne came in and brought something she started on Allenville. I really didn't know much about Allenville at the time. Uh, I had heard about it because I grew up here. I knew they got flooded out. But she asked for help, and that started a long process. Together, they started working on what is now a book called A Family Within a Family, The History of Allenville, Arizona. Michael used his technical skills as a history museum curator and archaeologist to help Joanne with formal archival research to add to their stories that she had collected. He says he learned a lot along the way. I think the biggest thing was the perception everybody, when I was talking to most of the people in Buckeye, when I talk about it, they just say squatters, people, unemployed squatters down there, and they didn't understand what was going on at all. It was really a vibrant little community, and it had all sorts of things going on that just nobody understood. It just really surprised me how complex it was. The museum originally didn't think that investigating Allenville was a good use of his time, but he clarified that they later came around and had support from most of the board. I just did it. Um, As a volunteer, they couldn't fire me. And it wasn't bad acrimonious anyway. It was just a comic, under-the-breath comment. So I just let it slide, and I just kept going with it. And the more I started uncovering, the better the story got, the less I had met resistance. He said that uncovering the story of Allenville and helping Joanne put it in writing is very important to both Allenville and Buckeye. While he made sure to remind Taylor and I that Joanne was the driving and most important factor in this book being put together, he says he feels like he could give them a sense of peace by helping the town get their story told. The museum donated some money to help get the book printed, but ultimately only a few hundred copies were made because they were unsure how many they could sell. But Rachel and Joanne told us that now that there's been an increase in interest, they're trying to see how they can get a second printing. Rachel noted that not only was this an important project for Joanne to set off on, but it felt deeply personal as generations go by without the knowledge of Allenville. They didn't experience Allenville at all, but that was my beginning. That was their grandparents' beginning. And so just for them to know that history is what we're trying to do. But the value now is is escalated because people that, and I won't say they were asleep when it first came out, but they really have hit hit us up for, hey, how can I get a copy? How can I get a copy? Well, there are no more copies, or we're in search if there are, and if they're not, we're going to try and find out how to get them reprinted. With everything the town faced, it's easy to categorize the story of Allenville 
as resilient as Michael did when we asked him, or even something like tragic. But when we asked Rachel how she would characterize Allenville, she said it's the story of heritage and legacy. We've tried to cover a lot on today's episode about Allenville, but if you want to dig in more, you can. Taylor wrote about Allenville on azcentral.com. We'll include a link to her story in the show notes. Just a heads up, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to read her story, please subscribe to our paper at azcentral.com join. It means so much to us, and it's how we're able to bring you new episodes every week. Thank you for listening to Valley 101, a podcast answering your questions about Metro Phoenix. If you're a fan of Arizona politics, be sure to check out The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast that breaks down local issues and helps you keep up with what matters in Arizona's political news. We'll see you next week. Take care.